Well, good evening. Good to see everyone today. I think of that song as very fitting, first song, where it says, "My Savior loves me, for my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast, he will cling to us, and he will never let us go, right? And he has always our best interest, right? And I think that'll be fitting as you see what the message is going to be for tonight. So <clears throat> we're going to continue in our study of the book of Leviticus, all right? Today we'll be in chapter 12, and as we will see, this next chapter, especially compared to last week's or two weeks ago, rather, and the next few chapters is quite brief, right? But as we'll see, the brevity of this chapter doesn't make it any easier to understand and certainly doesn't make it any easier to preach on. So I really labor, labored a lot through this, and there was many mornings for an hour and a half having thoughts but just having a hard time getting them unscrambled to get them down. I thank God for Pastor John, you know, my brother-in-law, talk with him. He helps me sometimes gather my thoughts. That's that great mind that he has. But uh, <clears throat> again, God is the preacher, is he not? I'm just here. I'm just a tool. And God is also the worship director. And we must get ourselves in that mindset for our worship this evening right? Get ourselves out of the way. We're following the direction of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and we are entrusting ourselves to him and his infinite power to work in each and every one of us this evening. So I'm excited. I am excited to share this. I really am. Sometimes it's like you get extra nervous. The nerves are there, okay? But I'm excited, and I just hope and trust that it comes out clear for you guys. So let us start out this evening by simply being glad, and being confident in him. So tonight's chapter speaks of laws for mothers and their purification after the wonderful gift of childbirth. And as always, when we're reading scripture, always, we say it all the time, context is key. We must understand the times that this book was written. We're dealing with things that are ceremonial and civil laws that were unique to the nation of Israel, and that have, have been fulfilled or abolished in Jesus Christ. We must understand the typical things being expressed in the immediate context. That's when this was written. In other words, the offerings, right? Uncleanness, purification, circumcision, all these things typified something. We must understand also the anti-typical things, that fulfill this in the greater and broader context, in our context. The propitiation that we have in Christ, the circumcision of our hearts, the cleansing we have in Christ, and the absoluteness of all these things because our God is indeed perfect. So I want to read the scripture first this evening and pray and address the first important aspect of this message, that is breaking it down and explaining it and summarizing to the best of my ability with the Spirit's help. And then I want to focus on the secondary aspect of our message this evening, which is the application. I'm going to give greater weight. Normally I would say the explanation. Like I want to say application is the greater weight. And I, I put them on the same page. But ultimately... Application can be tough, and it can be multiple ones, right? So the proper explanation of the scripture is, is key in allowing the Holy Spirit now to speak. But he has indeed spoken to me with this, so I hope that you would see it. So I want you guys to stand up in honor, as we always do, of reading God's good and perfect word. I'm going to read Leviticus chapter 12, all eight verses, and then we will pray. 
So the scripture says this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, when a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days as in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation. And she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. When the days of her purification are completed for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or two turtle dove or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or a female. But if she cannot afford a lamb... Then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be made clean. You may be seated. You bow your heads and join with me in prayer. Father, I thank you that you have revealed your word to us this evening. Again, that you've given us eyes to see and ears to hear that we can have the confidence in you and in your spirit who is among us right now. The very spirit who was our teacher and our helper, who revealed the Savior to us. Who is our empowerment to live this life in a way that shows that not only is Christ our Savior, but that he is in fact our Lord and Lord of all. Help us to make that a reality and forgive us when we fall short of making you who you already are and always were and always will be. Help us, Father, this evening to soak up every bit of your truth that you have expressed to us in this precious word. And we say this all for Christ's sake and for the glory of the triune God. May we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I want to first address and even kind of get out of the way maybe certain questions or thoughts that may arise as we look at these verses, thoughts that obviously were in my own head, right? One of those, why would a mother be unclean after childbirth, which we know was a gift from God and something that was commanded since creation, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, the Lord said. Why is the time of uncleanness shortened for a male child? One might say, are women more wicked than men? We know that's not true, by the way. Why did there have to be atonement? And why did there have to be cleansing for something so precious? So my title for this message is going to be, kind of like last week, Our Reasonable Service, Part 2, Thanks Be to God for the Antitype. So can you imagine for a moment being in a hopeless situation? Maybe you guys have felt like you were in one of those situations in your life. As a matter of fact, I know myself. I know a lot of people in this church. I know what some of us are going through and can seem that way. And the reason why I'm saying this is the scripture we have read spoke of a woman having a baby, 
which we know is God's will and is a blessing from God, but that now has to be unclean for a time. She's unclean. And not only that, but needs to slay two animals, one for a burnt offering, which implies propitiation and atonement, and one for a sin offering, which implies cleansing and purification. Concerning the word hopeless, Webster defines it this way, having no expectation of good or success, despairing. In other words, felt hopeless and alone, or not susceptible to remedy or cure. The doctor says his condition is hopeless. In other words, in Micah's words, we are doomed. Now we know that biblical hope is not the crossing of the fingers kind of hope, like most people use it, but rather it speaks of confidence, right? The confident expectation that we have in what God has declared and promised in his word is it is in fact true. We are blessed because God cannot deny himself. He cannot lie. He does not change, and therefore, what? We are not consumed, the scripture says. So rather than being doomed, we are in fact blessed, extremely blessed. The latter part of my title is Thanks Be to God for the Antitype. So it certainly would be good and helpful to be reminded of what that means, but I first need to remind us of what the word type means. We've addressed this before. I've addressed it. Pastors addressed it, right? Because I think when we're studying the Old Testament, it's important. These things constantly we need to be reminded of. I had to constantly, when John went over all those offerings, keep looking back at it until it kind of sticks in, sticks into our heads, right? So we want to constantly be reminded. So first... Let me give you what Dr. Richard Barcelos gives. He gives us great insight to what a type is. I've learned probably more from him than any professor that I've had in seminary. He's a brilliant guy. And he says this, First, a type is a historical person, place, institution, or event that was designed by God to point to a future historical person, place, institution, or event. An example, he said, would be the sacrificial system, which we've been studying already, right? Revealed to us in the Old Testament. That institution, he says, was designed by God to point to Christ once for all sacrifice. Second, he says, that to which the type points is always greater than the type itself. In other words, there there is some sort of escalation in the antitype. For example, the blood of bulls and goats could point to Christ but they could not and did not do what Christ's sacrifice did, which is what? Take away sins. Third, he says types, and this is important, are both like and unlike their antitypes. There is both correspondence and escalation. The blood of animals was shed. The blood of Christ was shed. The blood of animals did not take away sins. The blood of Christ, in fact, we know, did take away sins. And then fourth, antitypes tell us more about how their types function as types. The blood of Christ takes away sins. The blood of animals pointed to that. So you understand. So now let's look at antitype for a moment. Now it should be pretty clear because it was kind of in the, the definition of type if we were paying attention. But if it wasn't that clear, this is what an antitype is. It's a person or thing that is foreshadowed or represented by a type or symbol, especially a character, 
or an event in the New Testament prefigured in the Old Testament. In other words, if a type is a historical person, place, institution, or event that was designed by God to point to a future historical person, place, institution, or event, then the antitype is that future historical person, place, institution, or event. So if we take what Dr. Barcelo said, that the sacrificial system, which was a type, pointed to Christ's once-for-all sacrifice, which is the antitype, then we can understand that the antitype is the real thing, the greater thing, and the final thing. So why am I saying this? Well, if the latter part of my title is Thanks Be to God for the Antitype, then I want you guys to know what I am thankful for, why I am thankful for it, and I want, to sh- I want you to share with me in the very thing that I'm thankful for, so we can have that common unity as the body of Christ coming together on this day, worshiping our Lord. But the beginning of my title is Our Reasonable Service, Part 2. And I really want us to see why I'm saying that, and I would say that for this message, it even holds greater weight. Not because anything is greater than the antitype, which in this sense is Christ, Nothing is greater than him, but it holds more weight for our sanctification, that is, our response to his greatness and what he has done for us. So before I start, it would be good to be reminded of the flow of this book so far since we've been in it. We're in chapter 12 now. The first seven chapters speak of the laws that had to do with the different kinds of sacrifices that were made by the people. And if you remember, Pastor John showed us the uniqueness of these offerings and what they all had in common. And he showed us in great detail of how everything had to be followed, what? Perfectly to the T, right? In order for it to be accepted. Then the next three chapters spoke of the laws of the priesthood and the standards by which they lived. And Pastor Eric showed us the importance of what it means to be a good leader, right? And we saw a good example in Moses. We didn't see too good of an example when Moses left with Aaron, and we certainly didn't see a good example with Nadab and Abihu, and they were consumed. So important to have good leadership. Then the next six chapters, verse chapters 11 to 16, now speak of the laws associated with purification. And this chapter obviously falls under this. And we saw a list last week or two weeks ago of clean and unclean foods. And the remainder of the chapters, they're going to show us the ceremonial contamination that stemmed from diseases, discharges, and even the mold and mildew that found its way on material things in houses or whatever. So we can see that childbirth falls into this category, not because it is unclean in and of itself, but because of the process that, had to go, that went with it. Alan Ross, in his commentary, points out, that it was the fluids and the secretions connected with childbirth that made them ceremonially unclean. He reminds us that childbirth is blessed by God. It is part of his creation. But he says that it is very physical, very earthy, or this-worldly, and not the usual, normal, healthy condition for the woman. It actually fits, he says, it actually fits what a disease is, even though we don't think of a disease that way, right? And therein lies the problem. 
He says, for access into the sanctuary of the Lord required the individual to be whole. So we need to be reminded that all these purity laws that we're going to be looking at were for the purity of the sanctuary. Remember that the sanctuary pictured what? The presence of God in a real sense, a manifestation of it, not his... I mean, God is ever-present, we know that. But we know that if his glory was to be fully revealed, we'd all be consumed. He is that righteous, he is that amazing. But it was a manifestation of the presence of God. And just like heaven, no evil thing is permitted. Nothing defiled and nothing unholy will get in. And if you remember two weeks ago, I mentioned that the focus of the chapter, and that was a long chapter, 47 verses, was on the last few verses. So let's look at them real quick because it goes well into this. Leviticus chapter 11, verses 45 to 47. And it says, For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves on the waters and everything that swarms on the earth to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. So Israel was to be who they were, that is, what God made them to be as a nation. What does this all mean? Well, again, they were distinct. They were distinct. God made them distinct. Now they had to live this way. He took them and made them a people. He separated them. Now they had to be distinct. They had to be separate. In other words, this is talking about sanctification, right? So if we go back to my statement earlier, you can imagine if I said that, can you imagine for a moment being in a hopeless situation? And my reasoning for saying this is that how we look at things is often our perspective. One may look at all these things in the Old Testament and just look, we don't realize if we were there, it was a bloodbath, right? There is death constantly, animals being slaughtered constantly. You can look at all these things and see hopelessness. Or one can look at all these things and see great hope. And I'm going to submit to you that as I look at these things, I see hope everywhere. And maybe I have it a little bit easier because I live now in a New Testament age where I have the complete canon of Scripture. Certainly we have it a little easier as the church because we have full revelation. So let's go through this to honor God's word, but I want us to give our attention to the application when we get there. I believe the application has to do with the heart and the spirit of the law, rather than the letter of it. We've heard that before, the heart over the letter. But I do need to say that that doesn't mean that we don't care about the letter of the law, right? There should be no conflict with the spirit and the letter, right? The spirit shapes the letter. But there are times where there are exceptions, right? You remember David. There are exceptions. But then those exceptions are just that, exceptions, not the norm. So let's look at the birth of the male. Look at the birth of the male. This is going to be three headings, right? The birth of the male. Leviticus, verses 1 to 4, 12, 1 to 4. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation she shall be unclean. On the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for thirty-three days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing, nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. Actually, I'm just going to read verse 5 as well. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. So many have tried to explain the reasons for the different time periods of uncleanness for boys and girls. It's not an easy task, and it's comforting to know that virtually every commentary, every theologian that I've studied, both dead and alive, and they're good ones, okay, doesn't give a definitive answer. And I think that's good. They, God doesn't give all those specific details why, right? Again, like I, I mentioned two weeks ago, we must do the best we can with the Spirit's help to make sense of all this. Be diligent, right? Study the scriptures, do your best, use the brains that God gave us with the Spirit's help. And as we can see, again, the time was doubled for a female child. And there's no things set by God that do not have a purpose and a meaning. So we have to understand that. So how do we understand this, right? So I can understand the reason behind the initial seven days of uncleanness being just like the woman's menstrual impurity. But why the 14 days for the woman? So there are several observations that I see that may be helpful. Again, these are observations and by no means canon. Observations. So let's look at this. We're talking about the man. Cut short seven days for circumcision. When I think of circumcision, I think of a higher law. It was the sign of the covenant given to Abraham. Right? If you remember, if someone wasn't circumcised, they were what? Cut off from the people. Circumcision was an honor given to the male because of biology. Right? It was an honor given to male. And in this context, there was dignity placed on the man. And though females were not circumcised, they were consecrated through the males being circumcised. That's how it worked. The seed of the woman... Genesis always speaks of Genesis 3.15, foundational. We see it affirmed with Abraham. The seed of the woman would be a male, right? If we go back to creation account, we are reminded that Adam was given what? Headship, right? He was given headship. Males had the responsibility of headship and representation. We know that sin was passed down through the male, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, part A. For as in Adam, what? All die. Romans 5, 12. All this, speaking of original sin. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. But on the other hand, on the other side, one man... Jesus is also head, and he represents his people, and he gives him his righteousness through, through, through imputation. 
the same passage there, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 again, if you go to verse 21, it says, For since by a man came death, that is Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ. For as in Adam, again, all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Hallelujah. Colossians 1.18, He is also, that is Christ, head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. So Christ, as our representative, gives us His righteousness, and thank God for that, because I'm in need of righteousness. It is the Lord our God who will give us the greater and more important circumcision given to both males and females. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6 says this, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And we sit here, we love God, do we not? But we must be reminded the only reason why we love God is because our hearts have been circumcised, right? He has given us a new heart. And if he didn't first love us first, we would be God-haters like most of the world. So that's my observations for the men. Now concerning the female child, and I was joking around with some of the ladies here as I'm first reading this, I have visions of my mind, of the ladies of The View over here, and Oprah here, and Dr. Phil, and those on the extreme left who hate the Bible having a problem with this. But they don't have ears to hear or eyes to see. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. So double the time for a female. Remember that it never says anything first that the children are unclean. It doesn't say anything about that. So I'm going to look at this from a certain lens. The question that may be asked, and it should come up, is why? Why, Lord? So as you ponder that, and I want you to do that, I'm going to eventually get to that, as that is going to be the crux of my sermon today. The female would one day have the honor of birthing children into this world, right? That is an honor given to the female by virtue of biology. So as honor was placed on the man in circumcision, in headship, so there is with women who bring children into this world. That is a blessing. But it's a blessing that also comes with a great reality. A sad reality. And what is that reality? That those children, as cute as they may be, are infected with sin. Females also, this is all forward-looking, right? Females will one day have the same menstruation, periods of uncleanness, right? But women are also shown honor as the weaker vessel. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, as I am just saying this, 
I know it will offend non-believers. That verse offends non-believers. How dare you say that women are the weaker vessel? But what does weaker mean? First, let me just get this out of the way. It does not mean weaker morally. There's no difference between men and women there. We're both fallen creatures. Weaker simply means that the woman is physically weaker and more fragile than men by God's perfect design. By God's perfect design. Women are also weaker, hear me out, because this can ruffle feathers immediately when I first say it, but I have a parenthesis or a quote for parentheses. Women are also weaker emotionally, which is not a negative. It's not a negative, as that is part of their nurturing quality given to them, again, by God's perfect design, and them equally taking part in the image of God. Remember the scripture says in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And just for the purpose of being bold and unashamed, there is still just male and female, and anything else is a lie from the pits of hell and is not good for God's people, for all people created in God's image. Now, I want us to keep in mind the whole process of childbirth and what happens afterward. Life goes on, and there's business as usual when a woman has a baby, right? When a female worker of a company has a child, does business just stop? No, it doesn't stop. When a female servant in the church of the living God has a child, praise God, does ministry just stop? No, ministry goes on. But what does happen is an exception for the mother to be excluded from the normal things of life that she would normally be obligated to take part in. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as we're doing right now, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let me ask you a question. Do we rebuke the mother when she takes the first few weeks or maybe the first month or two off from coming to church when she has a baby. We don't rebuke her. What kind of love would that be? Maybe six months. Then, okay, hey, what's going on here? We want to see that baby, right? But we don't rebuke her. We expect that because there's an exception. And what would we call those exceptions? We would call those blessings. We would call them gifts. We would call them mercies. So I want you to keep this on the forefront of your minds as I'm going to come back to that thought again later. Let's look first now at the offerings. When the days of her purification are completed, for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or a female. But if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, 
the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be made clean. So again, we saw that there is nothing sinful in childbirth. We know that childbirth is a blessing. But the mother had to be atoned for and made clean. We see here. Again, because of the process of childbirth, because of the blood associated with it, because of the secretions and the reality that children being born are sinners. Right? David said in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And this does not mean that his mother committed adultery, that she was a fornicator. It's talking about original sin inherited for every single human being from Adam. You're born guilty. Okay? The scripture is crystal clear. No one is excluded from original sin except the one whose father is God and is God himself. Amen? He's the only one who is not infected with sin. There's only two federal heads in this God's created earth, right? Well, one wasn't created, right? You have Adam, represents all mankind, and the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who always was and always will be, and he represents his people and only his people. So important. So no one is excluded from original sin except Christ. And yet Mary had to do all this to fulfill all righteousness. Right? Everything that we saw here, Mary followed to the T. And she was birthing the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. It's very similar, I would say, kind of to the high priest. Remember that the high priest had to make atonement and purification for both himself and the people. So even if the mother was not guilty of sinning a particular sin, she still, on behalf of the child, gave her offering. We need to remember also that disease and uncleanness only exist because of the curse of sin. We don't know the exact details, but we know very clearly that there would be no pain if Adam and Eve did not sin. That was part of the curse, right? In pain. Can you imagine that, women? Right? To not have to go through pain when you deal with that. That's a result of the fall. So because the sanctuary was holy, this had to be done so that the people remembered that God is, in fact, holy. Let us be reminded again of what Moses said after Nadab and Abihu were consumed in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3. Pastor preached on this. says, Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. So an offering had to be made, and God made sure that the poor would have the same opportunities to be made clean. And guess what? It was that same poor. uh, That's exactly what Mary did, right? They were poor. The Lord came to this earth by humble means. This was the case with Mary. But now I want to get to the heart of my message. That's me just going through it, trying to make the most sense that I could possibly make out of this. But I want to get to the heart. 
I said that's the, the most important part. Last week, in going over all the unclean and clean animals, I had mentioned that in order for them to have success in all this, they needed to get to a very important place in their minds. Everything starts there first in our minds. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of both knowledge and wisdom. To truly know and to truly have a rationale in the way that we see life, it must start from this concept. Thus says the Lord. All true logic and reasoning and truth stem from that. This means we ought to have a presupposition that God's word is the supreme truth, the only truth, and that everything stems from it. So this is the place that the Israelites had to come to in their lives. So I said two weeks ago that it can be expressed in the the statement that we must hate, learn to hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves. That essentially has a big part of what repentance means, a change of mind, change of direction. Our success and obedience to his commands starts there. He hates it, then we hate it. He loves it, then we must learn to love it. But we first must be reminded of two important things. And the first is that that is not our natural state to be able to do that. Therefore, if it's not our natural state, then we must learn the supernatural state. The natural state is loving the things that God hates, the world in which we live in and hating the things that God loves. But the supernatural state leaves us in a state of war until God calls us home. This was Paul's battle as expressed in Romans chapter 7, right? This was not just a little battle, but he calls it a war, right? Remember that in regard to contentment, Paul had to learn it. It didn't come naturally. He had to learn it, and he had to learn it through experience. 1 Timothy 6.6, he says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. In chapter 4, verse 8, he says, For bodily discipline is is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And godliness in these verses is the word eusebia. It means piety. And what is piety, church? It is the act of showing reverence to God and devotion to His ordained worship. We care about what He says. MacArthur rightly states of contentment that to be content means to be satisfied and sufficient and to seek nothing more than what one has. So think of this in regard to the foods permitted and forbidden last week. They had to get to the point where they were satisfied with it. That they were satisfied with it because it pleased their Lord. And what helps us in our understanding of this satisfaction is to know that this is what is best for them. And I don't mean physically. Second, is knowing that everything God does for his people is good for them and what is best for them. So let's look at this. This is so important. Again, 
You guys are my brothers and sisters, and I know what some of my brothers and sisters are going. There's people that are suffering right now of things that are out of their control. Let's look at this. Pay attention. We can have the perspective of God always doing things to us, usually in a form of the question, why are you doing this to me, Lord? Or the perspective that he is always doing things for us. That is something good and loving and gracious. You will see that there is only one right response to that. We can look at all these rules and regulations and get overwhelmed by them and get a not-so-good kind of attitude. That's what they could have done when they were back then. Certainly not an attitude that is fitting for a saint of God. There are times that we forget that he is sovereign. We talk about that all the time in his church. There are times that we can forget his perfect and holy nature. What does Pastor Eric love to mention? He often mentions what God said to Moses when he passed by him. Right? Let me, do you think Pastor is trying to be annoying? No. On the contrary, he's trying to help us to never forget the good and perfect nature of our God because he loves you. And he loves his Lord. Exodus 34, verse 5 to 7. Read, let's read it. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a sermon one day in the future where it says, and stood there with him. I think there's something to be said there. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, his name compassionate and gracious what he does, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And church, what do we learn in all of this? That God is glowing, beaming with righteousness and perfection and overflowing with goodness and kindness and justice and faithfulness. And brothers and sisters, we cannot lose sight of that. We can when we get overly focused on the here and now. And I know the here and now is real. But it's under his sovereign hand. When things get tough or difficult in our understanding, we must regroup in our thinking and reel ourselves back in to the truth. Let me st first start by stating a very important piece of Scripture. And it has to do with King Saul. You probably know where I'm going. King Saul. Sad, right? Very sad. King Saul was shown incredible kindness by the Lord. He made him king, right? He made him king. And though it would have only been for a season, he could have been a righteous one. He could have been a righteous one. A righteous king is one that does what, church? Just say it. Huh? Loves, loves God, true. And we love God by obeying, right? 
A righteous king is one that obeys. So God commanded Saul to go and destroy the Amalekites, the wicked people. They were to destroy everything as commanded by the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3, Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Is this hard to understand? Maybe hard to do, especially the infants. But is it hard to understand? It's pretty straightforward. You move on to verse 7. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. So we have disobedience by sparing Agag, Agag, the king, the king, and not destroying the things that superficially were more valuable in man's eyes. They rationalized, probably, right? It's always dangerous. To rationalize. You move on to verse 10. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. So notice the very simple to understand concept that following God meant carrying out his commands. Obedience. You move on. It's quite a bit of verses, but I I don't want to just breeze over it. Verse 12, Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul, come to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? and the lowing of the oxen which I hear. And Saul said, They have bought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Look how crazy this is. So rationalizing led to delusional thinking. What is wrong with you, Saul? And a disregard to what God delights in. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Oh, Saul, only if you knew it was coming, right? Samuel said, is it, is it, it is not true. Is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? 
Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Isn't God happy about this? No. And then listen to that famous verse in verse 22. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Remember, these burnt offerings and sacrifices weren't God's burnt offerings and sacrifices. This was their burnt offerings and sacrifices based on these animals that should have been killed. It says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed, that is pay careful attention than the fat of rams. If you bring up again what I said before, everything that God does for his people is good for them. And what is best for them. I'm going to say that again. Listen carefully. As I know some of you are struggling. Everything God does for his people, and this is to me, this is to me, Everything that God does for his people is good for them and what is best for them. Do you believe that, church? We can have the perspective of God always doing things to us, usually in a form of the question, why are you doing this to me? Or the perspective that he is always doing things for us, that he is doing something good and loving and gracious. He is graciously showing his people what he desires which is good for them. So I want to recall a passage I read two weeks ago in my sermon. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 8. And I love this. It says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Remember that after I addressed the time of uncleanness for the female baby, I said something that was highlighted on the screen. That the question may be asked, why? Why, Lord? And I said, as you ponder that, that I was going to eventually get to it, as that was the crux of my sermon. Let me tell you what that means. Deuteronomy 4.8 again. Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? In other words, church, pay attention. What great nation has the privilege of knowing exactly what God wants? We know exactly what God wants. 
because he has revealed it in his word. God wants us to be close with him, doesn't he? He wants us to be close with him. And we get close by listening to him, his word, and praying to him, talking to him, communicating, having a dialogue back and forth. He has spoken to us in his word, and now we speak back to him. Or can I say this? We know that he's sovereign. And that means that he is in control of where we are in our lives. That means everything. Everything. Church, this is convicting to me. You know, I have mentioned recently this past year of my frustrations at my job. The very job, by the way, that I've never missed a mortgage payment that God has provided abundantly through this job. But I have mentioned my frustrations at my job, unrighteousness and just nonsense, Right? And maybe you have frustrations or difficulties handling your current circumstances. Maybe you are tempted to say, as I am tempted to say and have said, why are you doing this to me, Lord? Or maybe you are tempted to say, why are you making me go through this, Lord? So I want to challenge you. I had to challenge myself. To say, thank you, Lord, for doing this for me. That means the exact thing that you're going through. The exact thing that you're going through. It's under the hands of the sovereign king. He can take it away. Whether you did something that you deserve and you're dealing with the consequences, even still... Guess what? I have done many things that I shouldn't have done, and I didn't have the consequence to it. He was merciful. And there was times that I had to deal with the consequences. Whatever it is, whether it's your fault or not, can we say, thank you, Lord, for doing this for me? Or thank you, Lord, for allowing me to go through this. Why? For I know that you know best. Think of our text today and two weeks ago. Think of how it's going to be for a while as we study the Old Testament. Instead of looking at all the reasons why, why, and why, why don't we look at it as coming from a good and perfect and loving God? Everyone had to take part in the festivals back in the Old Testament, right? the ceremonies, the worship services, the Sabbaths, everything. No one was excluded. But during the time of childbirth, God graciously made them to be excluded from it without doing anything wrong. That is grace and mercy and protection and honor and goodness. God graciously gave the mother the much-needed time to recuperate and bond with her new child, even to keep her frisky husband off her until she can heal. God is good. God's laws are good and not burdensome, he said to us. Israel was blessed by God for many reasons. For he revealed himself to them through his word, 
And for us as the church, we are even more blessed. He has revealed his word to us. He has showed us the way, the truth, and the life. He has empowered us to completely obey through his spirit who is indwelt in us, who will never leave us nor forsake us and is our help and is our understanding to read spiritual book, a spiritual book, right? So our reasonable service comes from that great passage in Romans chapter 12. And remember that at that point in Romans... Paul gave them a whole system of theology. He still had a little more left. He enters the practical portion. Now what? Right? Now, because of all this that you've learned, now this. Right? And at that point in the book, in perfect timing, comes verse 1, which speaks of the fact that because he has done wonderful works, and will continue to do wonderful works, and because of who he is, now respond in the only way that makes logical sense. Be a living sacrifice. That is your reasonable service. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He has come, he has been sacrificed, he has risen, and he is coming again. Christ, who is the antitype of all those types in the Old Testament, has come and is coming again, and he has fulfilled everything perfectly, church. I'm going to leave you with this statement. Because of this, it is every bit unreasonable on our part to be guilty of having the wrong perspective. Therefore, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving in our hearts and let our hearts be set on acknowledging every aspect of who he is and let that be the driving force in our worship now and forevermore. God is for you, and he's for me, and he is perfect, and he is righteous, and he is good. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, well, I'm just a babe, and I thank you that you revealed your amazing truth to babes. I thank you. thank you for the supernatural teaching that you give us through your Holy Spirit revealing your perfect word to us. There are times where it's difficult, but Lord, we are so blessed. We are so blessed like the nation of Israel that you have loved us so much that whether we like it or even understand your ways, your commandments. That you've showed us what it is that you desire. And that should be enough. Thank you so much that you've revealed that to us. Because there's a dying world out there that are going to deal with the just punishment for their sins as we should have 
but that just punishment was cast upon your perfect righteous son. So Lord, thank you. Thank you that you revealed your, yourself to us. Thank you, Lord God, that you chose us before the foundation of the earth, that our eyes have been opened to see so crystal clearly that your son Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that we can cry out and call you Father. And thank you that we have a great and wonderful inheritance where righteousness will flow. Oh Lord, we long for that moment. And in fact, we even pray, Lord, come quickly and make everything right. But until then, Lord, help us to be your devoted servants. And I say this, Lord, to the death, even if that means martyrdom. We have no clue what the future holds. But I pray that each and every one of us would be bold enough. And I pray again, Lord, because this was so fitting with the sermon, Lord, I pray for your divine comfort on my brothers and sisters who are struggling right now and that they would have a great encouragement through this word, that you're in control and that everything is in fact okay because you are in control. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let us stand as we close in doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.